Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. When I thought about Chris's life, I felt that there was a sense of alignment with who he was internally, with how he acted on the outside. I looked at myself and in that moment, just recognized instantly, I have no idea who I am. I have no idea who I am. I am just floating and drifting. I don't know what my values are. I just didn't know myself. I was drifting 100%. And perhaps people would say the same about Chris. I don't know. But all I could say, he was very comfortable knowing that he was who he was in his environment. I didn't know who I was. I was unhappy. And I remember writing on this bit of paper, which I have somewhere, what could be more important than being happy? That feeling. And since, you know, of course, I've learned that there's so much literature and terminal. Is it being happy? Is it a feeling of contentment or fulfillment? I don't know. You can tell me, I'm sure. But I thought, what could be more important than just feeling good? And I concluded instantly, nothing. I remember thinking smiling and laughing is just the best thing for me. I love it. And I thought, well, how can I just do more of that? You know, I was curious about the world. Clearly, I was happy to take off and have a look and meet people and stuff. So I was like, well, how can I kind of meet this curiosity and this desire to be happier? What's the solution to that? So I began writing down things that I'd always wanted to do. And I thought it was like a slap in the face. I was emotional. A, because of what happened, of course, with Chris. But also, why had no one ever told me before, take a moment to just think about things that are going to make you feel good. Hey there, it's Light Watkins, your host of At the End of the Tunnel, which is a podcast that features the backstories of luminaries who have found their purpose with large and small causes, oftentimes after navigating very dark tunnels, and they are now using their platform or their art or their voice, or in this case, their list to help point others in the direction of the light at the end of their tunnel. My guest today is Sebastian Terry. And Sebastian started a movement called 100 Things, What's on Your List? Sebastian hails from Australia. And long story short, he got a degree in something called human movement, but he didn't have any idea how to turn that into a career. Plus, he graduated $17,000 in debt. He ended up getting involved in this inflatable movie screen business, which seemed promising at first. But it turned out to be financially and energetically draining. And he had these backstabbing partners and all these other financial woes. Then one night, Sebastian got a call and found out that one of his good friends from back home in Australia had died of an accident. And it made Sebastian start to question his own mortality and what he was doing with his life. He'd been working hours on end. He didn't have any money and he didn't have any prospects of anything better coming down the line on this path that he found himself on. And then something inspired him to get out a sheet of paper and to write out a list of 100 things that would make him happy. 
and he found himself writing down things like cycling across Cuba or visiting an inmate on death row or getting on a game show, marrying a stranger, delivering a baby. And Sebastian began putting himself in position to do some of these things that were on his list. And then the local media found out about it and they had him on. And then one time somebody saw him on television being interviewed. It was a quadriplegic man named Mark. And Sebastian ended up connecting with this guy. And then they completed a half marathon together with Sebastian pushing Mark across the finish line. This garnered even more press. And then Sebastian started helping other people achieve what was on their list. And his movement began to build. He now speaks around the world. He's given TED Talks. He started a nonprofit that connected people to causes. And he wrote a book called 100 Things, What's on Your List? It was a fun story to talk to him about how it started. It was full of twists and turns. And like all of my guests, Sebastian was just an ordinary guy who decided to take an extraordinary leap of faith. And I hope that hearing this story will inspire you to do the same. So without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Mr. Sebastian Terry. Sebastian, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast, man. It's so good to see you again. It's been a while since we've seen each other, but I appreciate you making the time. Yeah. Welcome back to Venice. I remember Mm. the first time, by the way, I saw you. It was at Soho House. I had heard of you, this this Mm. guy called Light. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, of course, I met you at Soho House, West Hollywood, and I think mean, you're wearing like a cowboy hat or dressed like a cowboy or something. And I thought, that's probably him. So it's nice <laughs> to know you and years later be doing this with you. I don't remember that day, but it's totally possible. <laughs> <laughs> and probably what would have stood out to me is that you were barefoot in the Soho House. Were you going barefoot back then? Or was yeah, that a relatively new, new thing? Yeah, I went barefoot for two and a half years. It just sort of so happened that way. I actually wear shoes occasionally now. Mm. Uh, yeah, back then I wasn't wearing shoes and I went yeah. to Summer House and everywhere else. Uh, it turns out you can really, with a bit of conviction, get anywhere. <laughs> well, you're no stranger to talking yourself into things. So we're going we're gonna to get into the backstory of all of that. And you've got such a fascinating journey. You know, it's one thing to know someone casually, but to have you on a podcast where I do deep, these deep dives into the backstory, I've gotten a chance to do that with you. And of course, uncover all kinds of really cool stuff that I had no idea about. And I'm even more impressed because I know you as a regular guy. Like in my eyes, you're someone who, when I think about you or when I see you in a social setting, I have a pleasant response to you. Like I feel more expansive because of the things that you do. And, uh, you know, I've seen, seen you peripherally on social media, things you've been posting, taking cold shower challenges and stuff like that. And, I was, you know, I just think that's really interesting. You know, knowing him, having Sebastian in my social circle, definitely, I think about that when I'm out and about in the world. So, so yeah, it's just, it's going to be really fun to go in and kind of fill in a lot of these gaps from your story. And, and hopefully we'll get into some places that I'm sure you've talked about pretty much everything at this point, but hopefully we'll get into some places that you don't talk about often in interviews. I'm so happy to know that. Yeah, no, let's, let's do it. Exactly. There's always more to it. Right. So uh, yeah. I'm excited to connect with you on this. And there's an electrician drilling in the background of your place. Yeah. I have the, the 405 in the background of my place. So if anybody yeah. hears anything, this is, that's, this is the real life situation happening. So 
let's take it back to childhood, right? So you grew up in Sydney, Australia. Obviously, I believe you were in Hornsby in that suburb. That's where you grew up. Yeah, I don't know how you even know that. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> I was born in Hornsby, stayed there for two years, which is Sydney, Australia. And then I, I actually moved to Norway for like two years. So I was three and four years old in Norway. And then I started speaking Norwegian as a kid and my dad, as my first language, my dad didn't like it. So he moved us to England. So I was in England for 10 years. So four till 14, I was in England and then back to Australia at 15, which was weird because I couldn't remember Australia. So I was pretty Mm. much English at that point. Let's focus on the England years. Those are your developmental years as a kid. When you think back to those days, did you have a favorite toy or activity? Yeah, well, I always played rugby. Like rugby mm-hmm. was my sport growing up, but soccer or, or football with a round ball, you know, that was just something that everyone did over there. So like a- active outdoors sports, that type of thing. I also had like a computer. I guess it's like not too dissimilar to now, right? Like with kids growing up. But yeah, I had like my little Commodore Amiga 500 thing with a joystick and wrestling games and all that sort of stuff. I, I think that was that was me in a nutshell. In the outdoor activity realm, what archetype did you fall into? Were you the leader? Were you the, the motivator? Who were you on the field? Well, when I played rugby, I was pretty good. So, you know, I'd captain teams and, and I'd be good. I was skilled. But with that said, I never really felt like that. I always felt like I was slow. I've always been slow. So like any other sport, I was pretty, not useless. At, I was skilled, but like I just wasn't incredibly valuable. I was just like there or thereabouts. Yeah, so I wouldn't say I was like a natural leader. I think I was just there. I felt like I made up numbers more often than not, apart from rugby. Uh, that's probably the truth of it, yeah. Growing up, your dad worked on oil platforms or something like this? Yeah. Did he have any oil platform wisdom that he would come home with and, and tell his, his family, like, make sure you work hard or whatever, you, whatever the ideologies were? How do you know this? Because <laughs> I do my research, man. <laughs> great. So my dad, yeah, he worked on oil platforms. So we're in England. He'd fly to Norway and he'd work in the North Sea on oil platforms and like be back every two to four weeks. So yeah, he'd come back. He was always just very motivating in the sense like he was a really big supporter, would drive me to the games, would rev me up before games, but, but also be super humble on the sidelines. I remember that a lot. He, You know, people would be like, oh, who's that number nine? I used to say number nine. Who's that number nine? And like, he would never say, that's my son. He used to tell me this afterwards. And I remember going, that's so cool how humble he kind of was. So I kind of learned a little bit of that. And he was just very tenacious and like just never gave up on anything in his own life. So I, it was those types of things that I learned rather than him saying something particularly. He'd also write me little letters. So at this particular school I went to for quite a, quite a long time in England, up until probably the age of 11 or 12, they would award good sportsmen with ties because we used to wear a suit, right, to school, like little snobs. So I got my rugby colours, my tie. I got my soccer, football colours. I didn't get my cricket colours. And I was really upset about it because my friends got theirs. And, and then he just wrote me a letter. And I remember this is kind of how he also communicated to me. It was just a beautiful handwritten letter saying something along the, the lines of, don't worry, your value isn't based on what others think of you. It's how you perform and how you, how you feel about yourself. And I still have it somewhere. And I just got a, quite a few of those letters throughout my childhood growing up. So that's how he would kind of give gems to me. Nothing about oil platforms. Seeing him go away for weeks at a time, what was your relationship like to success? Like, was that success to you? Like, I need to get a job at some point that 
send me away and then I come back or, or was it something the opposite of that? It's so funny. It was interesting. Like years later, I was 18 and finished high school in in Australia at this point. And I remember the first university degree that I I applied for was being an engineer, just because that's kind of what my dad did, right? I'm the least engineer person (laughs) you'll ever meet. So I, I was actually chatting with a friend about how influenced we are by our parents. But yeah, no, I don't think I saw that as success. I remember things that really drove me were, I mean, it sounds so silly, but my dad's funny. And he used to make my mum laugh a lot, right? So then when he went away to Norway, it was really important for me to try and make my mum laugh. So I really found value in that. And I remember asking my mum at one point, I was like, hey, mum, am I as funny as dad? Uh, And she said very clearly, no. And uh, (laughs) it it was things like that. So I don't know. I just very much conform to whatever, right? So like with school, if it was good grades I needed to get, that's what I would focus on and I didn't really have a vision or awareness. I was very much a sheep. You ended up majoring in human movement or something yeah. like this? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, so there you go. So I, at eight, forward again to 18, I applied for this course that appealed to my ego. It's called Human Movement, which was a silly name. They changed it after one year because they realized how silly it sounded. It was basically you, you would learn a lot of different things in the sporting world, biomechanics, mm-hmm. physiology, training, coaching. But the one line that got me when I applied was, this is a great course for those elite athletes that are looking to study and perform. And I remember thinking at that point, even though I wasn't an elite athlete, this would be great for rugby because in my head, I'm an elite athlete. (laughs) So anyway, that's what I ended up doing before realizing, A, the course was useless and B, I definitely wasn't an elite athlete. What was the plan? Were you going to become an elite athlete? Was that your plan? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I was always decent, but I think ultimately I didn't have the skill, right, to be the professional rugby player that I wanted to be. And as I got older, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21, I had friends who were excelling and making the Australian schoolboys teams or the, you know, the whatever the teams were. And I wasn't because I fixated on that my whole life up until that point. What were you lacking? Like, what, what were these guys displaying that you weren't displaying? Was it a work ethic thing or was it a talent thing? It wasn't work ethic because I, I worked as hard as anyone else. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I got gym programs. I'd go and do sprint training. It, it wasn't, so it wasn't that. I'd say ultimately, I think two things, if I was going to be really honest with you. Skill, <laughs> which is important. A work ethic is crucial, but you, I think you need to have a, a certain level of skill. Mine was high. It just wasn't high enough. There was a difference. There was a clear difference between me and, and those players who went on. And mm-hmm. then the other thing was mentally. I think I struggled with the psychology of high performance. A coach once said to me, he said, in one moment, you can be the best player on a field and do things that no one else can do. In the next moment, you'll miss a field goal from in front. And that was true. So I was very hot and cold. And I couldn't ever quite wrap my head around the psychology of performing well and consistently. So you finished school, you were $17,000, $19,000 in debt or something like this. Yeah. Your plans to become an elite rugby player have now been <laughs> snuffed out. So what do you yeah. do? What's the plan now? Yeah. So I, I, I finished, I guess I was 22 years old and like kind of in, in one big crescendo, I had a degree. I was completely lost as to what to do with it. And I had dislocated my shoulder playing rugby to the point where it just kept on popping out all the time. Mm. And I was, I was hitting it in and, and I needed surgery. I didn't get it. And in that moment where I couldn't start playing rugby, 
but I had this degree, but I didn't know what to do with the degree. I just got a couple of like casual jobs, very random. I mean, I must have had a hundred jobs in my time. I was like, you know, on the radio station when they give away free donuts and they have their their street team. And I was like, I'd be like, hey guys, we're down on the corner of Parramatta Road giving away donuts. You've got to use a secret word. I was doing that. I was working in cafes. I was pouring beers. I was doing all the, you know, I, bizarre jobs. And I loved it. And then, because I wasn't playing rugby, I remember picking up a guitar and learning to play guitar. And I remember starting to write because I'd never written before. And this big creative side, from nowhere just came out and I just had all this time that beforehand was going to rugby, but now I kind of had it for anything. And, you know, I started doing all that sort of stuff. And then I, like many Australians, I just traveled overseas backpacking. So I went overseas for about a year and a half with next to no money, finding guitars and things along the way, starting to write travel stories back to all my friends and family on email. I had a Hotmail account back then. And, you know, you used to like just send your friends hey, my travel's going well. I, I like, really like writing funny stories. And I got a bit of a following from doing it, which, which is really great. But anyway, yeah, that, that's kind of what happened after, after university, yeah. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, TheHappinessInsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. So before you hit the road, I'm curious, how close were you and your friend Chris, a.k.a. Detho? Like, were you guys hanging out every day, every week? Well, so Detho, Chris Detho, cool name. So Detho was, uh, yeah, he was, when we were at high school, we used to do all the things together. We you know, played rugby and we, we rode together. We, you know, we all had a very tight circle of friends in Avalon and the Northern Beaches, Pugola, Avalon area, for anyone who's familiar but when I went to uni, he took a different path. Chris ended up, he, he was just sort of working. I think at the time, I think he was fencing at the time, but like in a tradesman, that was sort of his world professionally. And he just sort of lived really comfortably and nicely, like up on the Northern beaches. I went to university and I sort of extended away from that part of Sydney geographically. And so by the time I finished university three and a half years later, no, we weren't, you know, we, we, we weren't catching up all the time. Chris was just a really good mate from 
a part of my life that I had just sort of gone in a different direction with. mental state like because i've heard you say how happy you were later on but i'm curious when you're backpacking you don't have a lot of money what was your state of being like at that time i mean i was kind of just drifting around i mean i was drifting is, is the term right i i had next to no money and i was finding that i was able to just sort of traverse various countries and continents and bump into people and, and you know, ha- have a good time. I, I, I did that for about, as I said, a year and a half after university. So it was kind of like it led into my mid-20s and I didn't feel a sense of urgency or pull towards having to secure a job. I just figured that that would just happen at some point. So there was no mm-hmm. direction or ultimate goal. I was just really kind of in the moment, which was great. I actually remember being on a bus in Morocco. I was kind of uh, going through the Atlas Mountains Mm-hmm. And I was just on a coach going in a direction to somewhere that, you know, didn't really matter. And I just kind of was like looking out the window. I was listening to Sting, Fields of Gold. And <laughs> I remember just going, because I, I always wondered when I'd go home. And it was a year and a half in and I was looking out the window and I just thought, oh, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go home. So that was kind of the end of, of that trip. And, of course, that took me home to Australia. And then it was interesting because I was thinking, well, what do I do now? I'm back in Australia. I have a degree. I've done the year and a half of backpacking. What now? And so, yeah, I just sort of accumulated this this collection of odd jobs and was really happy just doing them sort of in my mid-20s. Again, absolutely zero professional direction or any direction, any direction at all, at which point I don't talk about this a lot because it's kind of a long convoluted story, but a friend of mine called Thorpey, his nickname was Thorpey, he was in Canada and he said, hey, I'm starting an inflatable movie screen business. Do you want to come to Canada? Help me for a while. He had a business partner and he said, if it works, you can become a partner. I just had nothing else to do. And I thought, oh, that sounds good. You know, like I could be a partner in something. So I flew to Canada, ended up living in Regina in Saskatchewan over there, working for an inflatable movie screen business with my buddy and traveling around for, I, I want to say, the best part of a year in a big van with a big inflatable screen that we drive to some small town, inflate this screen, show a movie to the locals, and then take it down, be one in the morning, get in the van and go somewhere else. And we were just doing that as a business. So I was just transitioning from being at home with odd jobs to suddenly being in Canada with this weird job. And then that ended is Thorpey the same person as Tank or is that? No, Thorpey is someone else. Again, I, I don't tell this story. So I don't, I don't know if you'd been able to find this out. I ended up back in Sydney. It didn't work out. What actually happened is that Thorpey's business partner didn't like me and asked me to leave. And I thought, and Thorpey was in a weird position because of that. And I was like, hey, don't worry. This is your thing. I'll go back. It's all good. So that happened. And then the business partner screwed Thorpey over and said, actually, you're not even Canadian. None of this business is in your name. See you later. So Thorpey got completely done over. He had to come back to Sydney and he said, why don't we start this in Sydney? And I said, ah, okay. And then I got one of our friends or one of my friends, Tank, involved. So now we're in Sydney, three of us starting the same business, but in Australia. But you got the call about Detho while you were in Canada. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. I was in the middle of the night. It's in Regina. 
You just packed up the screen and you got the call? Yeah, it was somewhere in that weird place, yeah, just at the end of, of that whole period. And, yeah, I was staying at a friend's house. The phone rang and, yeah, it was a phone call telling me that Chris had died. My friend Bortho in Australia told me that. Again, with nicknames in Australia are very common. <laughs> so Bortho called me up and, yeah, he broke the news that, that Chris had died. And I don't recall much of the fo- of what we spoke about after that. Did you know all the mates that Chris had been partying with when he died? Yeah. The Northern beaches where we're from, Avalon, Bilgola, Newport, like, you know, everyone sort of knows each other. It's small, just small mm-hmm. beach towns. And yeah, so they were, yeah, they were partying one night and I, you know, I, I knew a bunch of them, most of them. Although I hadn't seen many of these people in a long time, including Chris. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was a, a party incident and he died and it affected so many people. You know, when people pass away at a young age and a lot of people say, oh, well, they were the light of the party and, you know, I, I'm sure that's all true. But Chris mm-hmm. absolutely was. Everyone <laughs> knew him. He was fantastic. Everyone loved him. So it even, had even, even the first responders knew him when they came. They the go, first that's responders. Dude, your research is phenomenal. So Marnie, <laughs> Mar- we rode together for Avalon Surf Club. So there was me, mm-hmm. there was Chris, there was Dorza and Kitty. <laughs> and then in the female crew, there was a girl called Marnie. And yeah, Marnie was an, it became an ambulance driver or an, an, an ambo. And mm. so, yeah, she was a first responder to the incident that happened at the party. And when she went in to the, the situation, she recognized that the person she was responding to was Chris. And that was, yeah, just everyone knew him. So obviously, I mean, everyone knows this person who just passed, right? So that it obviously triggers or initiates some sort of reflection. What was your reflection in that moment while running this company that was like making you a whole lot of money? Oh, so so just a couple of things. I think I'd already left the company at this point. I think I'd been asked to go home. So I was kind of like, what do I do? But Mm -hmm. I was in Canada. Secondly, it wasn't making any money for me. I got nothing. <laughs> I got I got a place to stay and, and some pocket money. But yeah, I remember precisely what I thought. I put the phone down. I sat there as I do when I'm trying to process something. I get like a, a notebook and a, and a and a pen and I and I start writing. It just helps. And I remember completely reflecting on just Chris and his life. And there was just a lot of doodling and random thoughts going onto this bit of paper. And then I remember just thinking he was really happy. He was just really happy. He just did the things that. Made him happy. He didn't really have a care as to what other people wanted to do, wanted him to do, whether it was parents or teachers or society at large. And I just thought, wow, what a well-lived life. It was a tragic loss, far too short a life, but what a well-lived life. And then I just sat down and thought about what I was doing. And whereas when I thought about Chris's life, I felt that there was a sense of alignment with who he was internally, with how he acted on the outside. I looked at myself and in that moment just recognized instantly I have no idea who I am. I have no idea who I am. I am just floating and drifting. I don't know what my values are. I just didn't know myself. I was drifting 100%. And perhaps people would say the same about Chris. I don't know. But all I could say, he was very comfortable knowing that he was who he was in his environment. I didn't know who I was. I was unhappy. And I remember writing on this bit of paper, which I have somewhere, what could be more important than being happy? That feeling. And, and, and since, you know, of course, I've learned that there's so much literature and terminal. Is it being happy? Is it a feeling of contentment or fulfillment? I don't know. You can tell me, I'm sure. But I thought, what could be more important than just feeling good? And I 
concluded instantly, nothing. I remember thinking smiling and laughing is just the best thing for me. I love it. And I thought, well, how can I just do more of that? You know, I was curious about the world. Clearly, I was happy to take off and have a look and meet people and stuff. So I was like, well, how can I kind of meet this curiosity and this desire to be happier? What's the solution to that? So I just began writing down things that I'd always wanted to do. And I thought it was like a slap in the face. I was emotional, A, because of what happened, of course, with Chris, but also why had no one ever told me before, take a moment to just think about things that are going to make you feel good. No one had ever done that. Like I'd never got permission from anyone else. My, my parents kind of expected me to go down this route. By the way, on graduation day, I happened to be overseas. I flew back and surprised my parents. I didn't tell them it was my graduation. They turned up and realized it was my graduation. And I had always really done the degree in part just to make them happy and they couldn't care less. So why was I always doing these things just for other people and completely forgetting about myself? Why had no one ever told me to think about myself? So this list of things just started popping up on a bit of paper. And I, you know, it was running with the bulls or cycling through Cuba, which was actually a goal a friend of mine and I had discussed beforehand. It was delivering a baby. It was, I've always wanted to walk across the country. I, I remember flying and seeing roads going off through the middle of a desert, endless roads just disappearing into infinity. And I, I always thought, who walks on those roads? And then I had always wanted to be the person to walk on those roads. So suddenly I just wrote that down, walk on those roads, walk across the country. So I just started writing down this list and I was fired up. I was angry because no one had asked me to do this before. But then I just realized in this moment, to me, it made sense. Drop everything you're doing to do the things that you want to do. Simple as that. That was a reflection I got instantly from the news of Chris. So that was literally the night you got the news. You wrote out this list. 100%. 100%. I wrote out a list. I mean, it wasn't 100 at that point. I kind of built it out. Were they stream of consciousness? Like, were you, or yeah. were you really thinking about it and kind of top of mind figuring out what you wanted to do? Or were you like channeling something from within? It was a shotgun approach for me. I was just like, right, what have we got there? It was just a big vomit of creative desire or something. <laughs> Retrospectively, I understand what it is now, right? And we can talk at length about that if you like. But at the time, it was just shiny things that I'd never actually given attention to. Some were meaningful. Some would get my dad his dream car. Some were completely stupid, marrying a stranger in Las Vegas and everything in between. But that, right. that was the beginning of it. So the other aspect of this, before we get into your sort of first real step is you were broke. You were going back and forth with the bank about how much money you didn't have. So true. I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> and what happened? You well, got I, a pleasant surprise from the banker. Yeah. So I thought they'd overcharged me. I thought they'd overcharge me. And so I, I can't remember what the figure was. I don't know if, if you know. $200 or something like that. Yeah, it was like 200 bucks or, yeah. And, and I was like, I rang up the bank from Canada and I said, hey, I think you've made a pretty outrageous mistake here. And you owe me, Sebastian Terry, $200. <laughs> and the banker just did some very simple maths, sort of like a two plus two equals four deal. And he said, mm. uh, you're wrong. And I said... Oh, uh, hang on. No, I haven't. What? Can you tell me the story? I was about to go and tell the story that, no, I was wrong. I didn't have any money, but maybe he did come. What did he tell me? Is I think what you're money? saying is correct. <laughs> like you thought you had a certain amount of money or they, they accidentally deducted the money and then yeah. turns out they were correct. But then he says, by the way, we have this line of credit. That's what he said. $3,500 line of credit that you qualify for if you want. Yeah. 
That's exactly right. Yeah, I was I was just thinking in my head, how do I get the money then? If you told me, yeah, I, so I made a mistake. He didn't owe me any money, but yes, he said, we can extend a line of credit to you. And I said, oh, please. You didn't even think about how am I going to pay this $3,500 back? No, no, no. This is a I gift did. from the universe. Yeah, absolutely. So that was what happened. And then I had that bit of money at the, you know, kind of in the same 12 to 24 hour period that I, as I'd created my list. And I thought, you know, I've got to put my money where my mouth is and I'm going to achieve one of these items straight away because I'm that fired up. So Chris's family is having the funeral in Australia. And where are you? This is a very interesting point. So the item I chose to check from my list immediately was marry a stranger in Las Vegas. So with this line of credit, I bought a ticket from Regina, Canada to Las Vegas, Nevada. And there was like a day or two in between me going. I think I left the next day. But what I also found out kind of kind of the next day was that Chris's funeral, it was going to be in like two or three days time, something really quick like that. And so I I was left with the decision of either going to Las Vegas to try and find a complete stranger to marry because I felt so inspired to do so because of Chris or cancel that, fly home and go to Chris's funeral. And so I thought about this at length, you know, because I obviously the most obvious sign of respect is to attend a funeral. In the moment, you know, I've just got to be completely honest. I, I thought, I really want to do this thing. And it's inspired by Chris. I, I thought it was a better tip of the hat to him than just sort of turning up to his funeral. So I made the decision to go to Las Vegas. I went there. I, of course, had uh, called his family already and given my condolences. Flew to Las Vegas without a plan to find a stranger to marry. As it happened, it took two days or three days. And just coincidentally, on the day that I got married, that was actually the day of Chris's funeral. I got married. The next day, I booked a flight back to Australia, flew back to Australia, and then went straight to Chris's family to say hello and spend some time with them. So that's kind of how it all worked out. When people got word that you were in Vegas getting married while Chris's funeral was taking place, was anyone like thinking to themselves, why isn't he here? Like, was there any tension or drama or anything like that I, during, I, from that decision? I don't know. I imagine there was. You know, I'm still friends with all of the group. And also like moved away from some of them too, or they've moved away from, you know, as people sort of naturally do. I don't know. I'm sure there was. I'm sure that thought existed. Why? Because that's a strong choice that would require a lot of context for people, you know, to understand like why you're doing what you're doing. You're not doing yeah. it because you want to disrespect. You're doing it out of respect Yeah. to Chris and what he's in his spirit, you know? Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. I, I don't really know. I don't really know. Mm. I mean, an interesting point about it is a member of Chris's family, I suppose had an issue with me at another point as well. And, and it was a sensitive topic, which I understood. And I mean, we can go into that if you like, but I think no matter what happens, there's always going to be elements of people, uh, percentage of people pushing back, right? Even if yeah. you feel there's not a valid reason for it. I think it's life. But um, yeah. And I think it's important to include that in the story because I think that's one of the reasons people let themselves off the hook. They think, Oh, I would do what Sebastian did, but I have to, ex you know, there's no perfect situation no. for you to take that leap. There's always going to be something. Yeah. Yeah, no, of course. I mean, I, I actually don't ever talk about this, but I mean, I'll share sort of fast forward again. We're kind of jumping all over the place here like that Michael Jordan documentary. But when I years later gave my first TV interview, again, just to fill in that gap in two sentences, I went home the day after the funeral, 
paid my respects, of course, to Chris's family. And then not knowing what to do, I started that outdoor movie business with my friend. And that took about two and a half years for me to realize this is not what I want to be doing. At that point, I'd had a list, but I'd forgotten about it. I'd put it in my drawer and just forgotten about the thing. And then two and a half years later, I just said, as soon as we pay this business off, I'm gone. I'm going to do my list. So I had that, you know, the hero's journey. Mm-hmm. I had the call to action and then I had the mm-hmm. refusal to leave, me being in Sydney, starting a mm-hmm. job, a company, which went on to make no money, by the way. And then I actually broke down in the back of the cab. I, I, I was really, a, the, the cab didn't break down. I, I did emotionally and I started crying. Tell the story of why you started crying. What happened just before you got into that cab? Yeah, I've been working for two and a half years, basically, with this outdoor movie screen business in Australia called Outdoor Movies Australia. And I was kind of working eventually by myself. Thorpe, who was the guy who got screwed over in Canada, mm-hmm. ended up trying to screw us over. You were screwing you over. <laughs> <laughs> it was crazy. Out of the blue. Out of the blue after, I mean, we've been working on it for a little while and we had just launched. We had a disastrous first event. It was comical. He <laughs> basically thought, I'm just going to, I need to do this by myself. So without telling us, he said, hey, I've started my own business. It's the same business, by the way, and I'm leaving you. Then he tried to steal all the clients that we had. But anyway, who cares? So I've been working really hard for two and a half years, essentially by myself. And Dave was sort of funding the company, but was working elsewhere. And I didn't have any money. I just had zero money. And I guess at that point I was 26 or 27 mm-hmm. and I just had zero dollars. And I was the, the company was paying me an amount that just got me by without, I mean, I had nothing. And Dave asked me to go out for dinner one night with him for his work thing. He worked in hospitality. And so I went purely because I couldn't afford to eat by myself. And so I ended up at this like lavish dinner really lovely at this place in Circular Quay in Sydney. And it was Dave next to me and all his colleagues or employees, actually. And everyone was at like silver service and we we're getting wine poured. And it was all really lovely. It was great. And then I just remember looking around going, what am I doing? I am 27 years old. I can't afford to buy myself a meal. Even if I could, I wouldn't be here. I'm purely here because <laughs> I'm purely here because I need to eat. And mm-hmm. I said, I just got quite upset. And I looked at Dave and I said, mate, I'm going to go. And I was getting a little emotional, but I held it together. I walked out. I went to the ferry to get from Circular Quay to Manly, where I was living then. And I missed the last ferry, meaning that I had to get a taxi home, which costs more. So I had to walk back into the restaurant and go, by the way, Dave, uh, I still am leaving, but I need money for a taxi. <laughs> so he gave me money for a taxi. And then, yeah, I, I you know, left Circular Quay. I was going over the Sydney Harbour Bridge and I just burst out crying. And I didn't really know why. To be honest, I just burst out crying. And I think my girlfriend at the time was in the cab with me. It's funny how you sort of forget things. Like, I think my girlfriend was in there. And she said, what's wrong? And I was like, I don't know. And so we went home, had a very somber evening by myself. And the next day I woke up and I just remembered this list that was hidden in a drawer in my room that I had forgotten about for two and a half years. So I pulled my drawer open. I got my list out, like my actual list of 100 things, which was there. And I have never felt so motivated in my life. I went down to Humphreys News Agency in Manly. I bought a map of the world, like just like a foldable map, map of the world. I put it on the wall 
and I got 100 sticky notes and wrote every one of my goals on that and then stuck it all on the wall on the map to represent what I wanted to do in my life in that moment. And for the next, well, that day, certainly, I couldn't work. I was just looking at the thing, thinking about all these possibilities. I worked really hard for something's put in front of me. And I remember thinking, imagine if I just took the focus that I've got on my laptop right now and I just moved it and I just went like that to a map on a wall that represented for me an opportunity to be happy. And I thought I would be happy. And that was it. I rang up Dave and I said, mate, as soon as we pay the business off, I've got to leave. And he said, why? And I said, I've got a list of 100 things. I've got to go and do them. And that was it. But you were broke. Like, what was the plan? To, how are you going to pay your bills? How are you going to take your girlfriend out to dinner? How are you going to yeah. <laughs> you know, get dental care? Was- yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I didn't think about dental care, I'll be honest. I did think <laughs> I, th- there was money in the business, not a lot. And so I said to Dave, when we pay it off, as soon as we pay it, I'm happy to work for, you know, whatever I was working for at the time. It wasn't a lot. I think he gave me like a, a bit of a bolster each week, but just so I could like go and do one additional thing, perhaps. My thinking was as soon as we paid the business off, we'd have maybe a little bit extra. As soon as we paid it off, I'm not a business person, but I thought if long as we pay it off and then a bit more, we can take that. So I think I took $8,000 from the company and we paid the business off. I think it was eight. It might've been 11. Do you know? I don't. I just know that Dave kind of pushed back a little bit when you told him about your... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. He was like, "What? Are, that's stupid. You're, <laughs> you're in your late 20s. What do you mean you're going to take off for a trip around the world, an endless trip, check off things like skydive naked or do an Olympic ski jump or become an ordained wedding minister? Like, that's ridiculous. But I tell you what, I'm not saying this for effect. I knew. I just knew I had to do it. There was no, no convincing me otherwise. Because we all think we know what's good for other people. You know, we might have some kind of idea, but if, if someone knows, they know. And, and I knew, I knew. No one supported me. My mum cried when I told her. My sister. <laughs> they weren't tears of joy. Nope, they were not. And they, and they weren't for a long time. They weren't for a long time. My dad was kind of like, he was the only one. My dad's a bit of a renegade. And he was like, yeah. I get it. But still, that might have been the most positive comment I got. Everyone else was like, that is. What about your girlfriend? What what was her response? Well, after that night where I realized, she's great, by the way. She ended up marrying a friend of mine. She's fantastic. But after I showed her my map on the wall of 100 things, she looked at it and she said, are we doing this together? Or And and I remember, like, it, it wasn't like a, to get away from her at all. I had the same kind of realisation that I had had earlier in Canada when I learned that Chris passed away, and that was I just don't know who I am. And I still mm-hmm. did two and a half years later. But that list that resurfaced as I saw it was my way to work it out, and that is a journey I knew I had to take on myself. Talk about some of the next steps. So once you commit it to your mission, and you didn't believe in the word bucket list because you thought that was too much associated with death, right? Yeah. What were some of the first steps, such as Googling pen pals in prison and, and things like that? Oh, that's true. Yeah. So, okay. So I committed to my list. I told Dave, when we pay the company off, I've, I've got to go. And that was, it was, it was fine. He, he just, as a friend was like, that makes no sense, but sure. So whilst in Sydney, I started thinking, I'm so action-based now. I never used to be. I was like, what can I do? I can't leave the country yet. I've got to pay the business off. What can I do for my list whilst I'm here? So I looked at my list and I used it as a reference point from that moment on in my life. And I would go, right, speed dating. I can do that in Sydney. So I went speed dating. Hilarious. 
I wanted to visit an inmate on death row. I just to kind of talk to someone that I would never speak to on any other occasion. So I Googled death row pen pals and you can do it right now. In fact, I'm going to do it right now as I tell this story because I keep telling people it's this easy and I just want to make sure I'm not lying. So I Googled Mm. death row pen pals and I was met with a database. Look, globalpenfriends.com. No, actually, that's not it. (laughs) That's something different. But you can. (laughs) You can Google it and you're met with a database of thousands of people who are on death row who are looking to connect. Yeah, first one, death row pen pals, writerprisoner.com for anyone who's interested. And you get to read their profiles. And they have a photo and they have their story. Some of them admit to what they've done. Some say, I'm here for the wrong reasons, but I've turned to God. So that was it. So I started, I wrote a letter. This guy had an address. So I just wrote a handwritten letter to this guy called James or J-Lock. And he was in there for a crime he didn't commit. Sounds like the A-team, by the way. (laughs) And he just, I don't know, for whatever reason, he, out of many of the profiles that I read, I spoke to this one guy. I read his and I thought, that's yeah, I'll do that. So I wrote him a letter. Two weeks later, he wrote a response and I got it delivered to my place in Manly and it was handwritten by this guy. There was like a template that he had drawn on each page and a story just saying, hey, you know, like I'd love to connect, da, 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 da. So I just wrote back and 12 months later, he invited me to visit him. So maybe that was maybe the timeline of from the moment I told Dave that as soon as the company paid off to when I left, maybe it was about 12 months but he was actually, that was my first kind of thing from that moment moving forward. You know, I didn't know where to go in the world. All I knew is I wanted to go somewhere related to the list. He invited me to Oklahoma, to a place called McAllister, to his penitentiary. And I thought, well, that'll do. So I bought a ticket to LA and then LA to Oklahoma, got a rental car and drove for like two hours to McAllister. I think it was about two hours. And then visited J-Lock in Death Row. And it sounds so bizarre and outrageous and you know, almost unlikely, but I've got to tell you, it's the simplest thing I've ever done. I just applied myself. And I'm not here to be a, a motivational speaker. I'm not on stage now. I'm just telling you, like, it was easy. It was easy. And things are so easy when you are very clear about what's important to you. And that's the question that's, that's relative, right? What is important to you? But at these points, it was that, followed by what happened then? I mean, whatever it was, I just look at my map and go, that's what's happening next. And I would go and do it. So when you're doing these first, say, dozen or so items on your list, were you thinking to yourself, this may potentially get picked up by the media, so let me record like what happens? And were you taking meticulous notes or? Not at all. This was completely just personal. I wasn't even recording half of it. It wasn't like in this day and age now where you have content creators and influencers. No, I was just doing it. With that said, and this kind of goes back to what I mentioned before, I wanted to raise money for a charity because I'd never done it before. So mm-hmm. I chose Camp Quality, which is an Australian-based charity that they help with kids with cancer. It's more detailed than that, and I wish I could give a better explanation, but I, I can't think of it offhand. And their PR team said, well, hey, why don't we put a press release out there? Because I guess, you know, as a business, which it is, they're wanting exposure. So they said, why don't we pitch this as a story? Guy with bucket list is raising money for kids with cancer. And of course, as soon as I did that, we got a response from Channel 7, like a, a big network in Australia, to do their morning breakfast show. And I was on their breakfast show. Before I even left Australia, having only achieved maybe 10 things probably, including mm-hmm. speed dating and what have you, I was talking about this goal. And what I noticed, a couple of things here, what I noticed is because I went on TV, 
I wanted to raise $10,000 for Camp Quality. I can't remember what the actual figure was that I got to at the end of that day, but because of the TV interview, we raised a lot of money for Camp Quality in one day. And I raised it after then to $100,000, which we went and did. So that was interesting, but no, there was never any plan with it. The, the one lesson that I, again, wanting to be like really open about what we're chatting about before, when I got on the show, I thought they'd be asking me just about my list. And the way that they framed the whole thing was affected by the death of his best mate, Chris. Sebastian has gone on to create a bucket list to try and find happiness. And I wasn't expecting that at all. And the truth was at that point, Chris and I weren't best mates. We had just been very close through school. But going back to that point of resistance, there's always some resistance everywhere. One of Chris's sisters didn't like that. And I I completely understand why. And Mm. before knowing that, of course, I I finished the interview. I I called his mum, who's wonderful. And I said, look, I did this interview and they asked me about Chris, like quite sort of how framed the whole thing. And I asked, you know, are you okay if that happens again, if I mention Chris's name? So I wasn't sure what to do. And she said, no, not at all. Like, go, go and do it. Like, is what we see is that your story is his legacy. That was her words, you know, exactly. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so for me, I felt good. But I don't know if that was felt all the way through the family or certainly with, mm-hmm. with one person. But, I, hey, it's a tough, sensitive topic. So, I, you know, no, no judgment, but that's the truth of that part. Their whole thing was you're making it sound like you and Chris were best friends and you guys just... You know, like a media beat up a story. Like they would have probably thought it was a shame that we weren't married or, you know, like whatever makes, whatever draws more emotion, whatever that story is to make it more emotionally, you know, evocative so that people really buy into that five minute story, you know, that kind of thing. Was that the interview that Mark saw? No, no, no. That was years on. That was the very first interview before I left the country. I left. Okay. What I found, going back to your question, is that I, I never did any of it to be seen or to try and mm-hmm. build a business or some people might see that as me either not telling the truth or being incredibly stupid. Um, it's, <laughs> it's neither of those, but if I had to pick, it would be closer to the stupid one. I just did it purely for, for my stuff. I found that media liked to follow me wherever I went. I suddenly would end up in a newspaper because someone I would meet in that area would generally go, oh, I know someone. This would be a great story. So that's kind of how it started at first. But of course, some of it was documented. I found that I loved writing from backpacking earlier on in my life. And instead of sending emails, block emails to everyone on my address book, I created a little blogging site where I just put down stories. And when I visited J-Lock on death row, first thing I did, I wrote this long story about the whole experience and it helped me process and understand it. And friends would read it and they would share it with friends. And that was kind of what I was doing. I hitchhiked across America shortly-ish afterwards. And that was the first time I ever tried to video anything. I had a camera with me and I just videoed and I thought, well, this might be cool in between my writing about it. And it was awful footage. My intention was to be happy. And there are other people and their intention is fine too, was to go out there and film everything and create this site that immediately inspires so they can do this and that. It's absolutely fine. It's just different to my way of thinking, certainly back then. Just for the listener, some of the items included things like going on a game show, which you did playing a song that you wrote on stage, being homeless for a week, delivering a baby, obviously getting married to a stranger, kissing a celebrity, stand-up comedy. So you started like writing down little comedy bits. You started, you know, you started doing all these little things that you could do initially. Was there a point where you started getting coverage and you started to think to yourself proactively that, oh, this is something that the media could potentially be interested in. This could make things easier when I want to jump out of the plane naked. Like if I could, yeah. were you 
calling the media and notifying them beforehand? No. As I said, the media would follow and it was always good and it got more people following me on Facebook. And what I would find is that the more people that followed me, the more people would offer to help me with my list. So I saw that my list was now being seen by many people. I've, of course, mm-hmm. learned along the way through my experience that people are fantastic. We're here to connect with each other. And if I had an opportunity to help someone, I would. And the same goes for anyone else with me. And that's what was happening. So that was the benefit I saw. Number 100 was to write a book on my list. I wanted to write a kid's book about the boats and the, and everything in Sydney Harbour. So it was going to be a kid's book. But ultimately, I got reached out to by somebody who wanted to help. That that person happened to work for Random House or Random House Penguin, as they are now. And they wanted me to write a book about my story. They had read the Death Row story on my blog and liked it so much that they asked me to put together memoirs of my journey. So that's kind of how it worked out. But everything's been pretty organic. There was a moment or two where someone would say to me, you should put out a press release about something you're doing. I think I did it on one or two occasions. I met this guy called Dave Cornthwaite, who's a professional adventurer. He also does speaking, you know, keynote speaking, but he was coming at it from a business point of view. Let me qualify that. He is a complete adventurous soul and he's great. He also has an entrepreneurial mind. And so he was doing what many people are doing now ahead of the time, which is fusing business and passion and adventure to help other people. That's what he was doing. So he was making documentary, mini documentaries, self-producing of him doing his adventures. His first one, by the way, was skateboarding the length of Australia, the width of Australia from Perth to Sydney and then beyond. Anyway, so he's kind of a known guy. So that was my first inkling of, oh, people can do this and actually try and generate money or something. That's not the direction I ended up taking anyway, but I saw it for the first time. So him and I decided to stand up paddle across Lake Geneva. We were the first people to do it, we think. It was on my list, number 85, go on an adventure. So that's what this was. And with that, I saw him send out press releases and he created a little mini documentary for us. And that was the first time I saw how it might work as a business. I still haven't gone down that route, but I started to see it. So, you know, ESPN approached me. They wanted to do a documentary. Discovery Channel approached me, wanted to do a documentary. I have a show. I have a 26-episode show here in the US, a reality show that went on this platform called Go90, which was a Verizon product, which was going to be like a Netflix equivalent, got dissolved. I don't know how these things happen. Well, I mean, I do know, but on every occasion that I just got approached. People would say, hey, we heard about you. Would you like to do a thing? That's a funny story. My first talk I ever gave in LA, I was approached by a guy called Keith from Defy Media here in LA. And he said, we want to do a TV show on you. What would it be about? And I, at that point, had started helping other people. And I said, well, I think it should be about me helping people achieve their goals. And he said, okay. And then I just sort of forgot about it. I mean, this is just such a good example of like me. I forgot about it. I went home for a year. I came back to speak at the same event the year after. Keith was there. And he said, where'd you go? And I said, I just went home to Australia. And he said, we want to make a show. And I said, oh, okay. So we made a show. All that to say that... Yeah, there was never an intention or a strategy around the, the business side of it. How were you making money? How were you paying your bills prior to all of that? So I think I left with $8,000 or $9,000, something like that. I mm-hmm. whittled that down really quickly. Then I started using my credit card aggressively. And without, again, no financial knowledge or, you know, I, I, there's no education around finances. So I did that. My mum she would pay the interest on my credit card. She wouldn't pay off debt, but she'd pay the interest, So, it, which was so good of her. I eventually paid it back. But at the time, it just meant that I wasn't going into any more debt. And I remember thinking, well, 
what's a credit card for? And in, <laughs> my answer was, well, it's for doing things you want to do. And I wanted to do all these things. So I was very happy using it. So I was flying to wherever without thinking or care. What happened was that I got offered to write a book. And so the money I got in advance for that covered all that debt. I was able to pay my mum back and thank her because she's the greatest human on the planet. And then a little bit more. So I started doing other things on my list. And then I got back to Australia and my book, which was now in circulation in Australia, and then it actually went into China. <laughs> so I forgot that it was China. China and Taiwan. I was generating a little bit of money, a little bit, but enough. But so many people were now reading it that I got asked to do a talk at one point. You know, a company in Australia had said, would you do a talk for us? I'd like my staff to hear your story. And I thought, that's interesting. So I did that. I'd actually done one more talk at that point earlier on. I can talk about that too. But anyway, I got paid for this talk. I got paid 500 bucks. And I thought, you are kidding me. That is phenomenal. (laughs) So I did that and they liked it so much. They said, we've actually got something like 30 branches or more around Australia. We'd like you to talk to all of them. And I was like, you're kidding. What? No way. (laughs) So so that's sort of how it it funded itself. The the other point, this is just a funny one, and I'm jumping around so much here, so I apologize to you and anyone who's listening. But number 36 on my list was walk across a country. Now, I chose France. So I was halfway across France with a guy called Maddie, who I'd met working in a bar in Geneva where I was living to try and learn French, number 42 on my list. And we were halfway across, and I had $40 to my name. $40. But by the way, I'd been part of another documentary at this point, which my plan was to get across France in 14 days, and they were going to fly me to England for the premiere of this documentary. So just to give a bit of a time frame. So halfway across France, I had $40 Australian dollars to my name, and I didn't care. And I thought, well, I'll be fine. And then I checked, we were in this tiny, tiny town, a village in France. We walked through and I checked my emails and Dave said, call me. Dave's my tank my business partner, if you will, for the inflatable movie screen business in Sydney after Thorpey tried to screw Mm -hmm. us over. And he said, call me, someone wants to buy the business. So I called him and I kind of had forgotten. I just didn't think anyone would want the business. And it turned out someone wanted to buy it. I think it was for $119,000. And I was like, you are, no way, really? So we split it 60-40. Dave argued that because he had been staying and working on the job he should get 60 dozen more. Right. And I said, well, he's my best mate. So I was like, yeah, but I worked on it for like two and a half years without you. Like, <laughs> I don't like confrontation. So we, we stayed at 60, 40 for the record about 12 months ago, me and Dave were catching up. And he said, I think you were right about that, by the way. Anyway, after paying capital gains taxes or, or whatever the other taxes were, I got my 40% of that amount ended up being something like $12,000 or something. It was, it was ridiculous. I, I, I'm really bad with figures, but it was nothing. But whatever it was, I was like, this is amazing because I only had $40 at the beginning of the day. So <laughs> it all just worked out in some bumbling kind of way. But I will say, and you know, I'll save this for later on if it pops up, there is something to be said for pursuing something that you're passionate about because things pop up, you seek out opportunities that you don't see before and things will show up. Like, the, you know, the, the world conspires to help you out. And, you know, I, it's not really my, my world, the way I speak in interviews or anything like that, in that sort of spiritually led way. I feel that there's something looking after us all if we're able to connect with something, you know, but I do believe there's something going on there. There's the old parable of the shoe salesman going to a place and all they see are either 
an opportunity to sell shoes or people aren't, aren't wearing shoes or whatever. Now you're looking at life through the lens of this list that you have and making decisions based on this list that you have, which I can understand would be quite exciting at this point. And you have a little cash in your pocket as well. But let's talk about number 26, because it seems you've mentioned that in almost every interview as a pivotal point. And I can understand why, because the things you were doing before were pretty much for yourself, maybe overcoming fear or putting yourself in a very uncomfortable situation. But number 26 was really a different type of motivation. Yeah. I had done all these things on my list that were all about me. Mm -hmm. I I think that was selfish, but in in a healthy way. I then had on my list, uh, number 26 was to help a stranger. And again, having got back to Australia, there was a TV show called The Circle, which got taken off air, but it was kind of like, is it called The the View here in America? A table with women sitting Mm -hmm, around. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the equivalent of that in Australia, they, when I was overseas, had asked me to like call them and do live Skype chats about what I was up to. So again, out of nowhere, I don't even know how that happened. When I went back to Australia, they asked me to do my first live interview with them in the studio. And so just contemplating what I could do, I looked at my list. And I felt really good at this point. Personally, I felt happier, which was, of course, like the beginning reason why I did this, because I wasn't feeling happy at the time. And they said to me at the end, what would you like to do next? And, you know, can we help you? And I said, well, I, number 26 is to help a stranger. So if there's anyone watching who needs help, let me know. And I got so many emails. Did you go into the interview thinking you were going to say that, or is that just something that just spontaneously occurred to you? Let me just say number 26. I think I knew I wanted to say it. I think I Mm -hmm. knew I wanted to say it. To this point today, you and me chatting, I've been going for 12 years. I think at that point, it might have only been, I left on my 28th birthday. I think this might have been 30-year-old. So Mm -hmm. it was just two years later. So I I realized that you could harness the media to do things. And I thought this would be a cool one. So I, yeah, I think I went in there knowing I wanted to say that. And so I, you know, I said, please let me know if anyone's watching, you need help. I got a lot of emails and yeah, Mark got in touch with me, this stranger at the time. And he explained his story and essentially he was able-bodied until he was in his mid twenties. He was backpacking through Greece, got bitten by a tick, contracted Lyme disease and went from being able-bodied into a quadriplegic without the ability to speak. Needed care team, a ventilator to stay alive, 20 four hour I mean it's hectic and he told me that he had a list of 150 things and he wanted me to help him shave his head which was like number one on his list and so (laughs) I said sure so as it happened I still going on my own list of course I had always wanted to ride a scooter across Australia so I was in Perth and I did it with a friend and we rode two scooters across the desert the middle of Australia (laughs) we end up in Melbourne where Mark lived. And so I had organized with Mark, we'll scooter over to you and I will shave your head. <laughs> so we did. I met him on the side of a road. I scooted to him. His care team got him out and I shaved his head. And that was cool. But I learned much more about him through his carers telling me about Mark. And I learned that he also wanted, you know, other items on his list included wanting to complete a half marathon. And I think that's probably why you asked me about it. And, and, and certainly this was kind of the moment where I just started helping people hands-on. Even in two years, I very quickly started getting emails from people asking for advice, which was very interesting. And I was giving advice to people, you know, kids and adults and high-flying execs and people who were looking for work. It was really weird. And anyway, this is the first time it was really hands-on. And Mark asked me to push it in the wheelchair. 
for the half marathon and just made complete sense. So I said, yeah. So I signed us up for the Melbourne half marathon, went home to Sydney, trained for a little bit. And then of course came back down to Melbourne and, and we pushed him. And I say, we, there was me and my, my girlfriend at the time, another girl, she's wonderful psychologist, brilliant person called Tani. She came and then a few of Mark's carers and we pushed Mark from, I think it was like five 30 or six o'clock in the morning for four or five hours so that he completed his goal. And it was the most satisfying thing I'd ever done. It really was. And from that moment on, I started getting a lot more people asking me to help them. And, and so I did. So that's why that I talk about that a lot, because often people say, what was the most surprising or what was the best thing you've ever done? And like that, all the things are great. I love them all. But that one had such a different effect on me. You're pushing Mark and a half marathon, which is still quite a distance, right? And you still have to train for it. And I imagine even someone who's not pushing someone would hit a wall at some point. Did you hit a wall while you were pushing him? And was the motivation of doing something for someone else so great that you just didn't even think about not finishing? Yes. Again, such a good question. I didn't hit a wall. I don't know why that was. It may have been because I felt so motivated because Mm. you're right. I felt so motivated. I obsessed over pushing Mark across the finish line for the three months in between that moment where I met him for the first time and doing it, or it might've been six months. I can't even remember. I obsessed. It was, it was all I thought about. And it's all I cared about. And, and I'm again, not saying this to, to create a dramatic point. There was nothing more important in my life than getting Mark across that finish line. I don't know why that's just how I felt about it. And so there was no way, there was no way we weren't going to do it. Mark hit a wall. Mark almost died at 19 kilometers. It's a 21 kilometer race, miles. I'm not sure what that is. At the 19 kilometer mark, his ventilator stopped working and he can't move. So he couldn't really say, because he can't talk, he couldn't really say or gesture what was happening, but he ended up very slowly rocking. And it turned out that his ventilator had broken and Tani, my girlfriend at the time, had started pumping air into him using this tool that they had. But we got across the line and basically... there was one other moment I experienced this and it was when I helped deliver a baby a year before in Canada. And it's when you're doing something for someone else and it is a matter of, it can be a matter as serious as life or death with the pregnancy. That is what you're kind of dealing with. And again, with Mark wanting him to achieve this goal, but also him having that moment where he almost died, I got complete clarity on what was important. And it had nothing to do with anything else. It wasn't money or status or anything else. I could, there's a million examples. All I cared about and all anyone cared about, both in the birthing room and when we were pushing Mark through that half marathon, we only ever cared about him. And I think when you're doing something so selflessly, and I'm not talking about me being a selfless individual, but just when you're doing something for someone else or something better and bigger than you, you gain like this kind of instant resource of energy or motivation or resilience or whatever. So that's why I'm sure we got him across the line pretty easily in the end. But I, I, again, like, I mean, just to say this, because I, I'm asked about it all the time or celebrated for this all the time. It's probably people listening now going, wow, that's so cool. Wow. What a, what a nice guy. Like, it, <laughs> I, I wanted to t- check something from my list. I wanted to help someone. And this was an opportunity. Mark also said to me afterwards, thanks so much. But it wasn't an act of charity. Mark as well had a goal. It so happened that there was a crossover for both mm-hmm. of us. And so we collaborated. And that surely is what partnership is about, professionally, personally, maybe even romantically. Two people who are aligned and happen to have a big crossover on 
you know, a couple of things, values included, we were just able to help him. Mark just showed that anyone on the planet, regardless of situation, this is a guy who's gone through the most extreme adversities. You know, too often there are people saying, I went through an adversity and it was harrowing and so dramatic. And it's no, sure, you might feel that way, but you're not going through what Mark's going through. He can't move or speak. He lives in one room and is not capable of anything, unfortunately. That's actually wrong. He is capable. He's a brilliant mind. He's very funny and he's found a way to write. He's a brilliant writer. He's fantastic, actually. He's just released his first book, would you believe? Yeah, Mark had basically just said, I'm not quitting, both in the race and in life. And he strived for a goal that was important to him. And his action plan was to just ask someone who could push him, and, and that happened to be me and others. And by the end of the race, there were many more people, doubled or tripled the amount of people throughout the race who were just helping to push Mark. People are absolutely bloody brilliant. And whether you're doing something for yourself or for somebody else, it's magic. Well, it's addictive too. Like I'm sure once you were able to serve in that capacity, that's all you wanted to do after that. And you even said that a lot of people reached out to you yep. to help them help other people or to help you help other people. Yeah. People would say, hey, I need help with something and I would help them. And then other people would write and say, hey, can we help you help someone? And I would say, yes. So then became this period of my life where I started matchmaking acts of kindness between the people who reached out to me who needed help and the people who reached out to me who wanted to help. And I'd say, well, why don't you guys chat? And so strangers from around Australia and then beyond would start to connect to help people achieve goals. There was, you know, so many stories, so many stories. There are these twins, autistic twins, Tyler and Zach, I think it were. Their mm -hmm. family didn't have means and they had graduated high school. In Australia, we call it a formal. You guys in America call it a prom. They couldn't go to their prom because they had no suits. And so I put a call out to my community. Hey, can we get two suits for these guys? Within, I feel it was 24 hours, they got suits, they got stylists, they got someone <laughs> who had a, a guy called Tony got in touch and, and donated his supercar to take them to the formal. They were like the, you know, the kings of the formal. Channel 10, there was a show on Channel 10 called The Project. They just heard about this, got in touch and said, again, without a press release, they just found out. And they thought, we want to talk about that. That's a good story. And so did a story and interviewed the kids at the prom. I mean, and this would happen all the time. That's ultimately what my show was about, by the way, when, when I got approached to do it. But yeah, we would help We would help people like that. We'd help an old lonely lady who'd survived cancer but had no one to share her life with touch snow for the first time. All these stories are very layered, very complex. Some are sad. What that did for me was make me realize that there's so much more to life than just yourself and your own goals. Those things are crucial, absolutely. But, you know, we live in a community and that's, I think, how we should be traversing each and every day as, as part of something bigger. The idea for Kind Sum, was that something that came through you or were you like spending time actively seeking out, how can I create a platform yeah. for this? I thought about it. I kept matchmaking people manually. Mm -hmm. This person mm -hmm. needed help. I'd call them. Oh, okay, cool. And then I'd ring 10 other people who'd give me the <laughs> And it was great. And I thought, imagine if you could automate this. So years later or years of work from that point on, I actually moved to America in the end to develop this platform called Kindsome, which was a matchmaking site platform, but not for dating, but for acts of kindness. So you could like mm. open up your phone and say, oh, there's someone within a kilometer of me who need, who's lonely and needs a phone call. I'll do that. That's what Kindsome was. And yes, because I was living and breathing it every day, it just became very obvious to me that that would be something that would work. The irony of it is it doesn't exist now. It's going to become part of the 100 things 
business, and, and we can talk about that too, because since we've met, there's been some really cool things happening. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, that's where Kindsum came from. But based, by the way, probably the most important thing I could say about it is fundamentally people are good. That's it. We each have a desire to help someone. We each have an ability to help someone in different ways. Not everyone can help in all the same ways. And we just need the opportunity. How do you find the opportunity to help somebody? I believe you just have to start a conversation. It's not common in our society to say, hey, everyone, I need help. You know, that scene maybe is a sign of weakness or it's overly vulnerable. But yeah, if you start having the conversation and understanding what's important to that person, this person and that person within a community of people who are there for the same reason, you'll soon and very quickly find that there's crossover and opportunity for people to help one another out. So that's what the whole premise of it was. And it's still something that we're going to do. It just won't look like kindsome anymore. So you've probably over the years become a world expert in helping people. And in this day and age with GoFundMes and Indigo campaigns, if you want to help somebody, how would you get your message to stand out from the sort of fray? Not that it's more important than anyone else's, but are there any things that you've seen over the years? Like if you include this particular type of story, context, timing, is there anything people can do to bring eyeballs onto their mission? Yeah, I think talk like candidly about it. I think confidently and, and passionately about it with, with people is share it with, share your need, your goal, if you will, with, with people you know, not in an obnoxious way, not in a way where you stand from a, you know, from a tower with a megaphone and say, hey, everyone, this is what I want. Who can help me achieve the thing that I, it's not that. There's a subtle difference, right? But it's a conversation. I mean, I always tell people, if you're looking to help somebody, there's everyone's, I'm sure everyone listening is thinking, oh, I'd love to help someone. I just don't know who. I I challenge you to put on your social media, do a story on your Instagram or your TikTok or whatever all the kids are doing now, and just say, over the next month, I plan to help one person in a way that I'm able to. I don't know what that is, but I would love you to share this message. And if if you yourself need help, let me know how. And just see what happens. And I've told that to so many people, and it's worked for lots of people. I don't know if it's everyone, probably not. But you need to put it out there. You need to start the conversation. And if you're someone listening who needs help, talk to someone about it. Talk to someone. There's somebody to help everyone. And there are organizations to help many people. You know, you you talk about COVID, you talk about mental wellness and health and depression and all these loneliness and anxiety that's fired up in everyone. There are organizations out there waiting to talk. So there's always someone. There's always somebody to talk to. I just think maybe ego gets in the way or fear, you know, all those common things. Speaking of which, you found yourself on a panel or on a stage with Mark Zuckerberg and Stephen, Steph Curry and Lance Armstrong telling your story oh. to a group of prisoners. And, you, yeah. and, and what was the outcome of that? Oh, mate, that was phenomenal. So there's, if you haven't heard of The Last Mile, check them out. So again, speaking to media, ESPN out of nowhere said, a producer got in touch and went, hey, can we make a documentary about you? And I said, who are you? And he's like, ESPN. And I said, who are you? absolutely. <laughs> so they, they flew to Australia and made a documentary about me. It was outrageous. It got seen like 20 million times or 30 million times. I mean, a lot of times. And a guy called Chris Redlitz got in touch with me, who is phenomenal, a phenomenal human. He from up in the Bay Area, San Francisco, successful business guy. And he started a program of his own volition, the last mile and he 
educates inmates in San Quentin prison originally on how to code. So he started and funded a, a coding program for inmates, incarcerated individuals. And so not only that, but personal development as well. So these inmates would go through a process of learning how to code and that would have a skill set such that if they got let out, they would be able to find jobs. So the recidivity rate, which is a word it's taken me three years to say, of those inmates who, which is usually very high, right? You know, the percentage of people who get out of jail and then recommit and find themselves mm-hmm. back in mm-hmm. is high. That's called the recidivity rate. The recidivity rate of individuals who finish the last mile is zero. And lots of them now have jobs in big tech startups and are doing phenomenally well. As part of that program, Chris had seen me on ESPN, wrote me an email and said, would you come and speak to the prisoners as part of our personal development program? And I said, yes. So yeah, Steph Curry had spoken in there, Mark Zuckerberg, not on the stage with me, by the way. Right, right, um, right. They were previous speakers. Yeah. I Lance, Lance Armstrong. Armstrong. Yeah. yeah. And a host of other people. And anyway, I, I got to speak in there and it was a phenomenal experience personally going on to San Quentin prison is beautiful. It sounds very weird to say. It's on a heritage listed piece of kind of like an island or a peninsula. It's beautiful. It's you mm-hmm. yeah. went in there. There's a death row part of the prison. I walked through the prison yard and you had like all the different groups, the Latinos and the whites and the, you know everything else mm-hmm. in their little areas. And they all stared at me as I walked past. And I ended up in a computer space with all these inmates. And I remember telling my story. And when I sort of give a keynote, at one point, I'll typically say, right, you know, share what's on your list. I'd love to hear from someone in the audience. You know, and I I speak to some of the world's biggest, like, organizations, right, to some Mm -hmm. of the most high-flying people on the planet. And usually, let's just say there was an audience of a 1,000 people, one or two would put their hands up. I said this to a group of, uh, it might have been 50 or 60 or 70 prisoners, and I said, right, who wants to share a goal with me? Every single hand went up. And I said, well, we've got time. So we went through every single person in rows on what their goal was. One guy wanted to be, from memory, wanted to be a a YouTuber on the way out. One guy, this African-American guy, wanted to sit down and interview on a podcast the leader of the Ku Klux Klan to talk about empathy or something. A guy in there wanted to complete a marathon. And I said, wow, that's fantastic. So, you you know, when do you get out? Do you know what marathon? He's like, no, 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 I'm doing this. I think it was like next week. And I said, what do you mean? And he, he calculated that if he ran something like, you know, I, I'm making up a number here, but like 300 times around the prison yard, that would be a marathon. And mm. it was just phenomenal. Like these guys in there just knew what they wanted to do. And I'm sure it was because, in part, because of this program, The Last Mile. Anyway, it was, it was, it was great. It was, it was a phenomenal experience. And I've met some of them outside of prison now. Some of them actually, they helped develop parts of my website and I paid them for it. It was a wonderful experience. <laughs> and the last mile of the program has now expanded through the US and it's you. you. You'll hear about it if you haven't already. I've heard you say in other interviews that you don't have very many days where you feel unhappy. Like you feel pretty up most of the time. Yeah. And the reason is because you live your life very much on purpose now. And I, I can totally relate to that because you normally qualify it in these interviews and say, oh, you know, it's, I don't I don't like to brag or I don't want to say this or I don't want to yeah. sound like a jerk. But, you know, I think the reality of the situation is, again, this has been my experience is that when you put your focus, like I write this daily dose of inspiration email every day, every morning I write it. It takes me maybe an hour, sometimes two hours. Wow. 
And so it forces me to have to look at my life and look at the things that I experienced through the lens of inspiration. And it's very hard to have a, an experience that at this point, I've been doing it for five years, that I don't look at it in terms of like, what is the silver lining in this situation? And as a result, I don't have that many bad days, to be quite frank. And you've, you've obviously been putting in the work, helping and serving and, and being on purpose for all, you know over a decade now. So you probably have the same thing where, where everyone else would see a problem, you would see an opportunity. Like, how can we bring people together to help this person? This is a great opportunity for, for someone to, to serve. So is that accurate? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I also want to qualify it, like, not qualify it, but to what you said then, sure, some of it's about service. Absolutely. But I think purpose is a term that can be spread across both things for yourself and things for others, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. that's what a list is. You know, it's a collection of things which are important to you. Some things could be incredibly selfish. Others could be incredibly (laughs) self-led, volunteering, whatever. So I think, I think purpose is the word. I don't know how often I say this, but I, this is something I think. I feel that my list is the tip of the iceberg, right? If, you know, that's what you can see. But underneath is where there's the values. That's where they would lie, right? So without now trying to use an analogy too much or sound cheesy, I really feel like my list is more a vehicle for me to try and work out who I am. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an ongoing thing. And I think the challenge of feeling good and ultimately living a life that you're happy with is a getting close to understanding who you are and then b being able to just be that person in every aspect and i think if we could all just be ourselves like unapologetically really whether that means you're selfish or whether that means you're selfless i would argue that everyone in their purest sense is a little bit of both in a nice kind of collaborative way i think that's living a good life you know you're right. I don't have many like down days because I know what I'm doing is like, it's really good for me. And thankfully it's good for lots of other people too. But yeah, I think that's what a list is. That's what I think, you know, goals are a vehicle for change and we should be thinking about what we want to change into, you know, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I'm sort of getting a little mumbled up. I'd love to use this as a case study for what you just said, being yourself. Cause I think in theory, it's a great thing to strive for, but in, in actuality, anytime you're being yourself, you're going to stand out. You're going to be weird. You're going to get pushed back, right? So in your example, right, you went barefoot for two or three years, yeah. which obviously was something, doesn't matter why you wanted to do it. It's what you wanted to do when you wanted to do it. How did you overcome that sort of societal, cultural pushback and frowns and grimaces from, and even like with dating, I can imagine all kinds of situations where it would have made people uncomfortable. Uh, ultimately, I just kept on doing it. I mean, I just did it. You know, the, the secret of doing things is, is doing them. But obviously, there's a lot more behind it. I mean, a funny dating story. There was a girl called Ashley, an American girl who uh, I spent some time with out here. I went back to Australia. She came and visited me. You know, so like we were sort of dating, whatever. It was lovely. And then I came out to the US, I think when I moved here, and we caught up at a place called Le Pain Quotient or something like that. Quotidian, Quotidian, yes. That one, at a cafe, and I wasn't wearing shoes, obviously. And she said, yeah, look, I'm stoked that you moved here, but yeah, we can't date. And I said, oh, no, have you found someone else? She's like, no, 
you don't wear shoes in parentheses you filthy filthy australian so yeah it's interesting i i got plenty of, i mean that was just one story but yeah i had I, we, we were filming i filmed my entire show 26 episodes barefoot and we were filming in paris which is such a dirty city and the looks of despair and disgust from people think you're homeless when they first see you they're like this guy's clearly homeless for sure for sure yeah but i didn't mind i didn't care it's not to say I'm bulletproof, because I'd love to say I don't care what anyone thinks, but of course a bit of that comes into play, right? But no, I just kept on going, and the only reason I stopped was interesting. It's like two and a half years after having started, so I did this for two and a half years. I flew everywhere. I was in airport lounges. I went to restaurants. I never really had any situations where it became an issue. I don't know mm. why, but I remember wanting to wear a pair of thongs one night, uh, flip-flops one night. And I put them on because I had one pair and I thought, oh, people are going to question me. And then I thought, hang on, what am I doing this for anyway? I only ever did it for myself. I didn't wear shoes, so I didn't feel to. And I suddenly felt like wearing shoes. So I just wore them. And I was right. People, oddly, the other side of the equation was people would go, you're wearing shoes. What are you doing? I've just told my friends about you. And the story would be exaggerated, by the way. I right. <laughs> Elliot, uh, you know Elliot from Summit? It's quite yeah, funny. Yeah, Bisno, yeah. Yeah, so he was like, yes, dude. He would tell his, his, his parents and he would tell his friend, this guy has never worn shoes in his life. Isn't that right? And I'd be like, well, I, no, that's not quite right. But interestingly, a lot of people would also say, because I was, at, you know, forget that this was something about my shoes, but people would say, I've always wanted to do that too. I've just never done it. How do you do it? And I was like, take your shoes off. Take, and the number of people who took their shoes off, I could count on one hand. Final question here. You said that you have uh, achieved 70-something items on your list of 100. Yeah. I got the list in front of me. I just want to go through and just, I want to try to see if I can guess what you haven't done yet. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So I'm just going to read off a couple of things and you can tell me yes or no. Live on a desert island for one week. I did that. You did that. Oh, my yeah. God. Wow. Go to Timbuktu. I haven't done that. That's in Mali. I always thought it was fictitious. So that's why I want to go there. <laughs> Feature in a Bollywood movie. I've done that. Wow. And fell uh, in love. Oh, my God. That was a funny story. Participate in a boxing match. I did that. Oh, I my God. That. Pose nude. <laughs> I did that. Highly embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. One more. Stay awake for 72 hours. The worst thing I've ever done. Yeah. Really? I that to anyone. Yeah, that, that was hard <laughs> and horrible. Oh, God. What I love about this list is that you had the foresight to add in to be announced. You knew that over time you were going to evolve and want to include things that you couldn't have thought about when you first wrote the list that, that night. So, yeah. So that's pretty cool. Right. Thank you. Thank you. That was really fun. Yeah, I appreciate you. And just to kind of loop it back around to these outdoor sports that you enjoyed playing as a child, and particularly in the role of the captain. And I feel like that was sort of a foretelling of where this whole thing was going. You were going to be essentially captaining us into becoming ourselves. To me, that's what this is all about. Because I think when you are yourself, you sort of embody that childlike sense of wonder that makes you want to do some of these things that it's so funny. I, I just I was listening to a 
interview with this other guy talking about something completely unrelated, but he brought up this idea of rejection and how if you don't go for your dreams, you're essentially rejecting yourself because what you're saying is that my dream is not as valid as all of the other dreams in human history. (laughs) So I'm going to reject it myself by not doing it, which is complete nonsense, right? And so we need someone to model what that actually looks like. And the fact that your story has an element of spontaneity and, and improvisation, I think is really, really powerful because again, when people see you from the surface with your hundred list shirts on and stuff, they probably think, okay, this guy drew out a whole business plan and, mm. you know, executed it and got mentors, but no, it was just, it was just like, I'm just going to take one step. It's very sloppy. And so here we are today talking about it, documentaries and speaking engagements and all these things happen. And that's really, I think the secret of abundance is you give everything, you give everything, which is what it feels like. And that's where the universe gives you back more to give i I agree yeah i agree may thank you for a a really unique chat Um, thank you man yeah and so so nice to connect with you absolutely absolutely thanks for tuning in to my interview with sebastian terry to hear more about sebastian's adventures i suggest following him on social media at seb 100 things that's s-e-b the number 100 and then the word things His book is also called 100 Things, What's on Your List. And of course, we'll put links to everything in the show notes, which you can find at lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. And while you're there, you can search my past episodes by subject matter. So if you want to see more episodes about people taking leaps of faith or about people who have stories related to overcoming financial struggles, you can get a list of all of those episodes about that particular subject on my website. Also, if you're feeling inspired by these stories and you want to make sure that this podcast continues to stick around for a while, the best way to do that and to help support this mission is to leave a rating or review for the podcast. So if you haven't done that before, all you need to do is have the Apple podcast app on your phone or device and you click the name of the podcast, which is at the end of the tunnel, and you scroll down past the dozen or so previous episodes and you'll see a little section with five blank stars and you just tap the star all the way on the right and you left a rating and if you want to go the extra mile and write a couple of lines about what you appreciate about this podcast or what your favorite episode is then that would be appreciated as well thank you very much for that and otherwise i will look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story from the end of the tunnel and until then Keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, keep taking those leaps of faith, and if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you so much and have a great day. you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, 
Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.